life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident, rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. In our final episode of Season 3, our story will illustrate the need for self-compassion, coupled with self-awareness and other awareness, transitions, and the impact on a family system, and how suffering is inexorably linked to our being human. And hope is intrinsically part of the divinity that lives within all of us. Thank you for journeying with me this season as we have traveled together with my story that may reflect aspects of your story too. Today is momentous as we venture forward, leaving the rehabilitation halls of the Shepherd Center, headed to our home in Baltimore, Maryland but not first without more bumps and bruises and little epiphanies too. Blink of an Eye podcast is sponsored by Blink of an Eye Public Charity. Did you know our podcast sponsor, the 501c3 nonprofit I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation, is now the Blink of an Eye nonprofit. And they have a launch campaign to raise funds so they can go bedside with SCI families in crisis. You can donate at www.blinkofaneye.org for the HEAL team, bringing hope, empowerment, advocacy, and logistical navigation tips with love to SCI families in crisis. If you are interested in volunteering or becoming part of the Blink of an Eye cutting-edge relational approaches to trauma healing, medical navigation, and emotional and spiritual support for SCI families in crisis. Fill out an information form at www.blinkofaneye.org. Follow Blink of an Eye on Instagram and Facebook at Blink of an Eye Nonprofit. Links to these platforms will be in the show notes. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face dialogue. You can learn more at baltimoremediation.com. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 28, Preparing a Family for Another Transition. Despite continued setbacks, we move forward. Hello, dear ones. Transitions are part of life. Transitions are momentous. Transitions related to adjustments to catastrophic injury involve thoughtful planning. Oh, yes, a spinal cord injury impacts the life of the injured person 
dramatically. SCI also impacts a family system. Preparing a family for grief involves open and honest communication, often necessitating a request for a family meeting. Where a safe space can be created for emotional expression and support and resources can be provided to navigate the grieving process, it can be important to encourage shared memories, open questions, validating individual experiences, and fostering a sense of we are in this together, as well as clarifying expectations and desired outcomes as the entire family prepares to face the challenges of grief as a family. Today, you will have an inside glimpse of a few such real-time conversations. Well, back in 2015, our community of extended family, close friends, and a wider circle of friends from the many intersections of our crisscross lives unselfishly journeyed together on this arduous journey with Archer, who was fighting to stay alive and to imagine living fully with a very complicated spinal cord injury. Well, that community now includes you today. In this final episode of season three, we will get a chance to experience an incredible turning point in the rocky journey of attempted rehabilitation at the Shepherd Center and the closing of a chapter as we packed up our bags and returned to Baltimore. Before we get started, since this is our last episode of the season, I wanted to share some quick housekeeping. We will take a break between seasons, allowing you to re-listen to your favorites or to tell your friends and let them catch up. It's also a great time to make sure you're following us on any social media platforms and becoming a patron on Patreon so that you won't miss any bonus content we release during the break. When we return, we will expand our format. Yes, we will still be providing you rich content every Wednesday on the wide and deep experience of trauma and epiphanies, including the trauma healing learnings for everyone. And of course, the continued Archer story for all of our loyal story followers. But we will expand with the Dear Louise series, which we piloted this season for our spinal cord injury community in particular. That's right. The trauma healing learnings will be twice a month as I interview thought leaders, deep thinkers, noted authors and healing practitioners of a wide variety of perspectives and modalities. Beginning with concert pianist, composer, and music therapist, Angelo Molino, who will take us into the world of music therapy with a look into the world of healing sound. Our centerpiece, Blink of an Eye Origin Story, will continue with unedited written bedside family and friends updates, the Archer blog, braided together with personal journal notes and interview lookbacks 
years later, from those who were behind the scenes, both heroes and villains, all to further the healing journey of integration, applicable for any life that has changed in the blink of an eye. And you can look forward to the new Dear Louise series for our spinal cord injury community with interviews of ordinary spinal cord injury heroes navigating their daily and often extraordinary lives. And we'll be talking with SCI specialists who bring cutting-edge practical tips and information for SCI caregivers, medical staff, and for those living with SCI after hospitalization. So we have a lot to look forward to. So settle in. Take a deep breath and tune in to all of the transitions that are currently taking place in your life. Here we go. Back to November 2015 at the Shepherd Center. Personal journal note. I've been staring at the poster on Archer's wall of Pope Francis. I don't know why, but I can't take my eyes off of it. It was kind that Stephen Colbert sent it to us. It's hard to believe. It was over two months ago that I left Shepard on that crazy instinct to see the Pope. It was a mere... 24 hours, a whirlwind 24 hours, when one of the Atlanta Angels drove me to the airport and I flew from Atlanta to Baltimore to meet Billy, to then venture on a rented bus with a group of people from our church to the streets of Philadelphia, with the other three million believers also traveling to Philly to see the Pope. Even though the traffic was heavy, I remember. The mood was high as the chatter of anticipation filled the air. We all carried prayers in our hearts for desired change in our lives, for miracles. And I felt in my heart to ask for sustenance to stay the course in what life has presented to Archer and our family. I won't forget the singing and praying and laughing in anticipation of just being close to our Pope. I'm thinking of that a lot today. There truly were little miracles all around that day. (laughs) I'd left my cell phone in a taxi with all my medical notes on Archer and my personal journal notes in it, and a young girl truly, miraculously, tracked it down across town with something she did on her phone which amazed me. And a Russian-speaking man, who is not the original taxi driver as the shifts had changed, told me in fractured English over the phone that he had found my phone and agreed to meet me and return it. Even though he was clear across town over 10 miles away by the time we connected and we were separated by millions of pilgrims on foot and car coming to see the Papa. We actually met through some other divine intervention 
And as our eyes spotted each other, that taxi driver and I, I remember being so full of gratitude as I locked onto his eyes. And then I didn't even hesitate to climb a very tall barbed wire fence that encircled the area where I was as there were throngs of people pressing on the fence and my phone would not fit through the metal openings. It was a magical feeling of connecting as he extended my phone to me and I shoved all the dollar bills I had through the fence holes and watched them float down to him below as he looked up, so surprised. And it was also miraculous that in the mayhem of people, I spotted a reporter friend of mine from UVA and we got so close to the Pope and how I felt carried, truly carried, transported by the wave of young people with their singing and energy as Billy and I clung to our little homemade signs on white cardboard shirt inserts that said, pray for Archer and a miracle for Archer Semft. He will walk again. I remember the swell of hopefulness I had as another pilgrim extended his hand to me and lifted me up another wall to glimpse the holy man who had come to America to grace us with his presence, to bring us together. I felt and believed that our prayers for Archer would be heard. All prayers are heard. Right. It still makes me smile. November 15th, Sunday, day 104. I try to slip away for Sunday Mass at a time when Archer is sleeping and carefully scoped out for the nearest church where I can park, where I probably should not, for a quick entrance and exit so that I'm away no longer than an hour. But when I was in Mass today, I was reminded of what Pope Francis had set out. You may or may not know that this December will be the beginning of the Year of Mercy. Yes, Papa Francesco has declared December 2015 to 2016 as the time to focus on human dignity. I was talking with Archer about this. The year is marked as a year to become more merciful and to be more merciful to others. What does that even mean, to become more merciful and to be more merciful to others? Well, I think when we suffer or cause others to suffer, we can begin by being merciful with ourselves. We are merely human, and we also are divinely human, both. Suffering is part of the experience. There can be learnings in suffering. There can even be a joy in suffering if we do it for a reason. 
or sustain ourselves through it, knowing it is not forever. It isn't permanent. Nothing is. It's our awareness of our tendencies, our shortcomings, as well as our gifts in excess that will allow us to discern a path that is not as full of suffering. (laughs) I think the way to sustain the self-awareness is through self-compassion. If God, who is all good and all powerful, can forgive me because he loves every molecule of me, and the same is true for you, he loves every fiber of your being, then how could we not forgive ourselves and want to live more in the image of that mercy? That is so powerful. With every disappointment or judgment we have of ourselves, we can have mercy, can forgive ourselves, and thus can begin again. God wants us to forgive ourselves, to love ourselves, to care for ourselves, our souls. For when we do, we have so much to offer others. And so with each self-judgment or doubt or criticism, clean slate. That's what I like to say, clean slate, like confession and absolution. Oh my, that reminds me of when my friend, the Monsignor, from another Catholic church further away, came to see me a couple weeks after Archer was admitted at Shepherd. Oh, so long ago, Labor Day, I had asked him if he'd come back sometime to hear my confession. I really love him, and he is so beneficent. He did return some days later at an agreed-upon time. As we strolled around the hospital, one of the first times I had been out of Archer's ICU room, we spoke as friends, and I shared my thoughts about Archer's condition and hopes and disappointments. And as we strolled the halls of the different floors looking for a quiet place to sit, we found the upstairs seventh floor, a lovely space. We continued our talks as we sat facing each other. And as we sat in this quiet space, I recall pouring out my heart and finding myself getting angry about the constant need for vigilance. I remember I started to get a little wound up and I realized I was exhausted with the constant vigilance. And I told him how tired I was and how weak I knew I could be in the middle of the night and the wariness of the medical profession that had crept in on me. I was mad about the situation for all those people who don't have a family to be the eyes of vigilance. I then recall being upset that I was not better, that I was worried I'd overlook something for Archer, and that I'd gotten mad at Billy and blamed him for something out of my own weakness. I was a mess. 
And I said loudly, with tears streaming down my cheeks, something like, this situation is fucking crazy. And I had this flash of, oh my, I just said the F word, and it's Monsignor. And then I had a flash of, oh my, I just said that, and it's okay, because it is Monsignor. He loves me and will not judge me. I then was wrapped back up in my own stuff. He listened patiently. I regained my composure. He listened patiently. I could feel his loving presence. He had his head bowed. I was grateful for my friend. I told him how I wanted to be a better person and how I was struggling with that. I then recall that I looked at my watch and realized we had been away for a good hour and I'd spent the last part of it driveling on rather than going to confession. And I said, oh, Monsignor, I'm so sorry. We haven't even had time yet for confession. And he lifted his head and looking at me, he gently said, for your penance, say two Hail Marys. I began to laugh in a way that is light and thankful as I began to protest. But Monsignor, we didn't even really have the confession. In the Catholic faith, there's a beginning litany of prayer and an ending litany of prayer. And he said, yes, we did. You just spoke from your heart. That is all. God asks. Of course, how silly of me to have even thought otherwise. It's not the formality per se. It's the intent. We were in a place of confession, quiet and thoughtful. He had to remind me of that. Isn't that beautiful? I felt so light, so absolved, so blessed, so grateful. Thank you, dear God. Thank you for this dear man walking in your stead on this earth. I reached out to Monsignor Dillon years later and also to a member of his church to reflect on that experience. Confession can be a profoundly moving experience. It's so powerful to feel forgiven when we have bared wide open our wounded hearts and our bruised egos before something so much larger and loving than we can ever imagine. Something that takes all of our fragility and feeling of brokenness, and heals us. The act of confession brings a sense of joy and relief and freedom as we unburden ourselves of our sins and seek to make amends to truly begin again. It's also a humbling experience as we confront the reality of how small we are. And yet, 
how deeply loved we are. Well, here's an excerpt from years ago when I spoke with Diane Festa of the Order of Malta, who was another Atlanta angel and member of Monsignor Dillon's congregation, who also stepped forward to help care for me while I was at the Shepherd Center. And I had met Monsignor Dillon on a pilgrimage to Lourdes, but I never realized he was from Atlanta. Oh, you didn't know? No, no. Yes, he actually was responsible for starting the Knights of Malta in Atlanta. And um, yes, and he's a chaplain. He was a chaplain for for Lourdes for a long time. And, um, And that was certainly an experience. Because Malta, I don't know whether you've explained this always, but it is, the mission is to serve the sick and the poor. And we go to Lewis and bring us sick, isn't that correct? Yes, exactly. It's interesting because when we go to Lourdes, part of the ministry is for us to really experience uh, the deepest humility, caring for the, the sick and the dying, and then to find us as a family in Atlanta, experiencing the goodness of the order with you tending to us, you know, it was just an interesting full circle experience. One of the first persons who then came within hours to the ICU at Shepherd, who just walked in our room was Monsignor Dillon. And because I had met him years prior in France, and knew he was American you know, with the region. With an Irish accent. With an Irish accent, a big Irish accent. From Ireland, yes. I had never even thought about where he was from or that he would be from Atlanta. And when he walked into our hospital room and there he was, it was like, I, I can't even explain that feeling of of coming home and knowing that we were going to be all right. And like, Monsignor, I remember, Monsignor Dylan? And I said to him, what are you doing here? And he said, my dear, I live here. <laughs> you know, it's what's coming up for me and also with Monsignor Dylan that similar when Monsignor Dillon walked in, I just immediately like threw my, like a big hug. And I began to cry and said, will you hear my confession? And he, yes. And he said, oh my dear, you know, let's just go for a walk. And so we walked all throughout the Shepherd Center. We'd only been there, like truly, I don't even think we'd been there an hour. And they were having to still really check out Archer a, a great deal. And we were not even acclimated to our room. Our, I mean, nothing was unpacked. Things were still coming in. We only had a couple bags, but I mean, we had just arrived. And he and I walked all over the first floor, went down to the basement. We saw the pool that was down there. And I am busy yammering away about how all these things have happened and and, and they don't believe. And I, I believe it please tell me Archie's going to walk. And I think I wasn't very nice to that nurse. And I just want to be a good mom. <laughs> just, you know, just like on and on and on. Even telling you right now, I mean, like an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And then we went up to this beautiful, uh, maybe it's just like this executive suite there. It's very gorgeous and elegant. 
you know, how you all do in the South. And he and I sat down and I, I said, I'm so sorry. I said, I just want to have my confession. Will you just hear my confession? And he says, he leaves over and he takes my hand and he says, oh, my dear, I have been listening to your confession. Everything is forgiven. Oh, my God. It was, it was incredible. And that sounds like him, doesn't it? It's just it like him. him. Yeah. I'll, it was just, it was the most amazing confession. And I'm all, you know, caught up. I was just thinking about, you know, with in this circle, you know, we all, we all get caught up. But, you know, it's what's just so wonderful about him is, you know, people get caught up with all the, the, the Catholic, the, the act of contrition and the this and the that, and the blessing and the Holy Lord. And Monsignor just simplifies that. Just, yes. Just cut, he just cut right, right through it all. And you know what, you know what he said to me? He said, I think I think I and my like, no, no, Monsignor. I mean, I, I know I really need to make a confession. And he said, my dear, I have heard your heart. Everything you have said has come from your heart. And God hears your heart. There's nothing more you need to say. So where were we before that digression? Oh, yes, mercy. The mercy God extends to us. Confession, yes. It is good to go to confession, at least for me. Absolutely nothing to hide, nothing to shade, nothing to half-truth, nothing but the raw truth of my humanness. We get absolution. It's amazing to feel the lightness and the fullness all at the same time, the well-being of absolution. I wonder if you feel that too. I remember when I first learned that Pope John Paul II, beloved around the world for his mercy and love, especially of young people, went to confession daily, to his spiritual confessor. Daily. One of the holiest men on earth, and he goes to confession daily. We all need a spiritual confessor. They're different than just good friends. They walk in the shoes of God, of Jesus, and do not judge or let what they have learned get in the way of loving you in the moment, or later, or much later. And it's over. It's confessed and absolved with God to begin again. Aren't we so grateful to know God and to feel his love and mercy? Just feel that for a moment. To begin again. You may have said or done something you wish you hadn't in the last 24 hours. Heck, <laughs> the last couple hours. We're human. But you know you're better than that. That was not the true essence of you, right? It never is when we do something unkind or mean or wrong. It's really not our true essence. 
Just allow your breath to soften your shoulders. That's right. Now, it's easier to forgive yourself and to discern the right course. If you need to apologize or make something right with someone, go do it. Let's all do that today. As I post, it's almost Saturday, November 14th, and it will probably be Sunday, November 15th by the time I get this to you. Let's all reach out to someone we were not our best selves with and say or do something that makes it better for both you and them. It may be an apology, like, I wish I hadn't. But it may not. You know what it needs to be. I know it may not be easy. Well, go for something that is easy if you need to. And then do something that is hard. And notice how you feel afterwards. You'll feel lighter. Mercy. Mercy for self. Mercy for others. It benefits you. And it benefits others. And we all benefit as a society from that sacrifice. Because we are all connected. That love makes us all stronger together. Absolution helps us to do that. Archer Strong. One thing about this journey with Archer is that we are able to take time to think of things that we may not have otherwise or took for granted or overlooked, but were there all along for us like confession. I just love that. And like abundance. Oh, I wanted to tell you something else that happened. As many of you know, we are not a TV-watching family, for the most part. I was a Scrooge since the day Paula was born to not have TV in our house, which lasted about 20 years, if you can believe that. Well, in the last number of years, we have had a TV, pretty much, though, just for sports, so we can stream Manchester City soccer football games from the Internet and always be able to watch our home teams in all sports. But that said, I know there are wonderful things on TV and excellent educational shows, too. But the reasons were many for why I didn't want TV in our house and never in our bedrooms as I have felt that it steals so much time, which is so precious, gives a daily diet of consumerism, sexism, and violence, and sucks the life out of the daily art of conversation and getting along, because there's little time to practice. So, since the staff at Shepherd will turn Archer's TV on when his last therapy session ends, and Archer is always eager for Channel 59, the Food Network. He is seriously logging in, I'd say, three to six hours a day of TV. And that's unreal to me. And it's true. Now, 
I looked up the national average, and he is still below that. But can you imagine? The national average is between seven to nine hours of TV watching a day for most children. Well, now, here in our hospital room, he and I have had some great discussions about his favorites and how we both think the face of the fast food industry is changing and will change even more so, influenced by the popularity of these food cooking shows. We bet that consumers' choices will trend for eating at more farm-to-table restaurants, at places that offer a variety of non-processed foods, and eating more at home, where cooks, young and old, can participate and where eating and conversation can happen more around the kitchen table. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I think families are strengthened by the nightly ritual of breaking bread together. I know they are. I know ours was. We talked about that and how these young kids on the food cooking shows, aged 10, 13, and 16, are absolutely magnificent. We both love those kids. But all that said, three to six hours a day of TV watching is a lot of time. Because Shepard has not been too keen on Archer's taking school classes, and also because Archer's ability to speak has been so limited, Archer is logging in a lot of TV. I mean, a lot. And not only on, but it's crept into the background for the four to five hours a day that he and I, or he and Billy, or he and any of the Atlanta Angels and visiting friends and family members spend with Archer, feeding him. Yes, it's now almost nonstop eating we do every day from about 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. And that's awesome. But the TV in the background, I don't like. I also think it's setting Archer up with his new brain activity to associate watching a screen with eating. At some point, he will gain back his 35 pounds. And when he does, he will need to curb and preferably not have all that impulse to eat when he sees a screen. After all, a screen is used in our lives for so many things, including communication via Skype and schooling. I'm very aware of the power I have to just turn the TV off. A mere hit of a button on a TV wand. But I'm also aware Archer has no power whatsoever. So I would never do that. Archer's not powerless, however, since he could, when I'm not there, and I'm, say, in a conference room around the corner from his room working, or I'm on the phone, etc., ask a nurse to turn it on for him, and she would. So he has that power. But it's no way to have a parent-teen relationship when the teen does exactly what the parent fears as soon as the parent turns their back. Although I know there is an element of that in a teenager. 
but that is not a setup I want to contribute to unwittingly. Essentially, a power standoff that could result and that would be unhealthy for both of us, both short-term and long. So I wanted to dialogue with him about it. So I said to Archer, since I last wrote to you, something like, You know, Arch, I know you love the Food Network and all the cooking shows, but for all the years in our house, we have not had a TV. And I know you have a show you love on your laptop on Tuesday nights during the school year, but you sure are logging in a lot of hours watching food preparation, which has me a bit concerned. And Archer mouthed, Ma, it's fine. And I said, well, it's not really fine for me. I mean, I'm okay with some of it. And I like your choices of the Food Network and Stephen Colbert. After all, Stephen and his wife sent Archer a poster of Pope Francis in Philadelphia, knowing we have that in common. And that poster hangs in front of his bed, too, next to the photos of Kate May. But it's just so much time, Arch. I mean, are you aware how many hours a day you're watching TV? And Archer said, Ma, it's fine, really. And I said, but Arch, I'm not sure it is. You have a brilliant mind and a lot to give the world. You've had years without TV, and you guys, our children, are all the better for it, I think. Don't you agree? Archer, sort of nodding, said, Yes. I continued, You're all good communicators. You've had all these extra hours a day to just be with each other, to enjoy each other, hang out, talk, and play. Make up rules of games, be creative, play music, read, hang out, right? Archer nodded. I continued, I just want you to think about that. That's all. I think Dad would agree with me too, but you can ask him. I was noting the number of hours you log into the Food Network, and it would be nice to turn at least some of them into school hours, don't you think? If we can, upon our return to Baltimore at Kennedy Krieger, put some more school instruction in place, don't you think it would be a good replacement? Archer nodded in agreement to that. I was relieved. He so loves school and learning. So I was not actually surprised, but he also loves to cook. And I also want to honor the education around cooking. The cooking channel is providing that. Help me, God. Help me stay grounded and shaping Archer's decisions the best way I can for him to make the final decisions later in his life regarding how to use his time. Because I can imagine a life of mega TV watching by those who are quads or confined otherwise. But this conversation led to another last week about time. I said, Arch, you know I've been thinking about another aspect of time for you. Want to talk about this? And he nodded 
Okay. I continued. You would be at sports practice at least three hours a day at this time of the school year, and every day essentially during the school year. That's another three hours you now have, at least until the creative miracle. You might consider now how you want to use that time. It's a lot of time you could spend thinking about important things. Ever thought about that? He nodded. He smiled and then mouthed, Hey, Ma, can you put the food channel back on? (laughs) We both laughed. It was a funny moment. Those conversations were last week. Well, three days ago, before I flew back to Baltimore for the fundraisers, a more remarkable conversation occurred. Archer said very deliberately after dinner, the TV was not on by mutual agreement, and before dinner number two and number three, since he is woofing things down now and consuming well over 4,000 calories a day. Hey, Ma. What, Arch? I noticed he was pretty animated. It was Sunday night, the same night of the first vent tube pop-off, but before the vent pop event. And he said, Ma, I've been thinking. I could figure out a cure in science for SCI, spinal cord injury, for me and for all the other people like me. Like in 10 years, I said, hmm, yes, Archer, you just might. He said, that would be a creative miracle, don't you think, Ma? I said thoughtfully, hmm, yes, Arch, I think that would be a creative miracle. There was a long pause. Archer, very bright with the pupils of his eyes still totally dilated, then said, I mean, Ma, a creative miracle in 10 years. I'll be just about 27. I'll still be young. And then I would have the rest of my life ahead. The rest of his life. That really is something, isn't it? So he's thinking. And he's engaged with his future and the possibilities. I do have this feeling that Archer Sempt will walk someday. Hope is so life-sustaining. I should stop. It's too long. You have got great stamina. But I did want to update you as so much passes and happens in a week, or in our case, 10 days. 10 days. So Archer asked his doctor, how long do these sweats continue? We continue to battle at night in particular, but throughout the day as well, the sweats, heavy sweats on his face and neck. Nowhere else, at least for now. Actually, as I write the word sweats, I can hear my mom now during those little girl years when I'd come into our house in Illinois after running and whirling around outside and proclaim, I'm so sweaty. 
and my mom would say, Louise, animals sweat, men perspire, and ladies glisten. <laughs> I always liked that I both glistened and perspired since I was a tomboy. I also liked it because my mom would say, that's what my dad used to say. Okay, so Archer perspires profusely. When he asked his doctor when it will end, she said, maybe never. Archer looked at me with the most pained expression. I then asked, do all quads sweat like this? And the doctor continued, some quads do, some not at all, some for a short time. Then she paused and said to Arch, but I've not known anyone to sweat like you do, Archer. Honestly, my take on it all that is similar to my view about the copious amounts of mucus production is that there's something holy going on in Archer's body regarding healing and the overabundance of perspiration like the overabundance of mucus is related to his healing. It makes sense if the tissues and fibers internally are working on connecting. We just don't know it yet or can't see it yet. But it causes Archer to suffer tremendously. The now reality is that Archer really pumps out the perspiration all over his face and neck while the rest of his body is dry. To give you an idea of what it's like for him, as soon as I might wash Archer's hair in the shower, which he dreads because showers are so hard from the perspective of temperature swings from chills to sweats, his long locks never dry because they are drenched almost simultaneously with perspiration after he goes through feeling chilled. And this body temperature thing, it's really wild because all day long he prefers the temperature in his room to be about 66, 68 degrees, warmer than the ICU at least. And he asks often what the room thermostat reads since his body that doesn't perspire still nonetheless responds to the external temperature. He can feel on fire to the touch of his skin and not be sweating at all on his body trunk. But his face and neck are beaded up with droplets rolling down into his ears, which he does not like. Then there are those nights he asks for a warm blanket and often many warm towels because the thermometer put into his mouth reads that his core body temperature is 96 and his legs literally feel cold to the touch. Then there are the nights where both things happen. On those occasions, Archer feels chilled and looks like an Arab with his two white towels just plucked from the ICU warmer with one draped over his shoulders and another around his head and face while the rest of his thin, long body lays there exposed with nothing covering it to the cold air, not able to cool off fast enough. This continues, despite the double dose 
of propantholine. We want to cooperate with what the body needs for healing and also manage his misery wisely. Please pray that Archer's perspiring may at least even up and then in time ease up so he can rest. It's hard to rest because it's hard to get comfortable and because he needs a number of hours upright in his power chair where he can do regular weight shifts like every 30 minutes to prevent the dreaded bed sores. So we also inquired of the doctor about the drug being used to control his sweats. She said he was at the highest dose. We have found some of the drugs helpful. Some others seem to have little impact on him. And some he doesn't need at all, even though they may have been standard protocol. We are learning and always questioning drugs, as you know, and their quantities. I'm starkly reminded of the importance of questioning all drugs and their quantities. Because a few nights ago at Shepherd, I ran into one of the dads who was at the microwave in the little kitchenette area the families use. I was there to heat up a glazed donut for Archer after he had eaten dinner, plus a full Subway sandwich Billy bought for him, plus two trail mixes, plus an insurer, plus another brisket sub from Jimmy's in Atlanta brought by another Atlanta angel. And now we are topping off the four to five hour time for chowing down with a donut. As I waited for this other parent to finish using the microwave, I asked him how his daughter was. I had seen her crying and very distressed in the hallway in her power chair earlier that day. There were a number of medical staff around her within a few feet of her power chair, sort of watching on. I said to him then in the kitchen, it's good to see you. How's it going? He said to me with a giddiness in his voice and quick body movements, discharge date next week. And I said, I see. You sound very happy. And he said, oh, yeah. I knew his daughter had been off her ventilator for weeks, but still had her trach in. She had use of her arms, chest, and voice, and it always seemed very pleasant when I'd see her. In fact, I had thought to myself on more than one occasion, even though she's older, it's still remarkable how smooth and outgoing she is. I thought she'd be a good role model for Archer. I said to her dad, I meant to ask you earlier how your daughter is because I saw her crying in the hallway. He lowered his head. His entire demeanor changed. And he said, Valium, she is getting hooked. They started to take it away from her. It was bad, still bad. And I said, Mm, I'm sorry to hear that. Sounds rough for everyone. He continued, Oh, yeah. I thought she might be getting hooked. I mean, you know, but nothing you can do about it. And I echoed, 
nothing you can do when you thought she might be getting hooked? He said, yeah, you know how it is. You can't tell them not to do something. They just do it. And she's hooked pretty bad. And I said, sounds like you had an instinct about it, but didn't think you could tell them not to. And he said, yeah, that's right. I mean, I didn't really think about it. But now that I do, she's been on a lot of stuff for months. And that Valium and that other stuff, it's got to get you. Yeah, she's crying all the time. And I said, I'm sad to hear that. Sounds like it's rough for both of you. And he said, oh, yeah. I told her she better stop because if she don't, I'm leaving. And she can be stuck with her mother. And I said, oh, would you really do that? And he said, oh, yeah, it's rough. And I know she don't like her mother. So I said, hmm, that's tricky. Sounds like you want to motivate her. But now she's drug dependent and not responding to what used to motivate her to change some sort of behavior you don't like. And he said, exactly. She don't like her mother, and her mother don't like her. But I'll leave. La nonsense. And I said, so you're thinking about leaving. Do you think it helps her now to tell her you'll leave her? He said, don't matter. I will. She keeps this up. And I said, I don't blame you. It's rough. And I can tell you really want her off the Valium. I wonder what it would be like for her and for you if she knew you would not leave her and you told her you wouldn't leave her, even though you know you could, but you don't. And he said, oh, no. She keeps this up. I'm leaving. I finished nuking Archer's donut and said, well, I hope you all work it out to a good outcome. And then a remarkable thing happened as he was about to leave the kitchen. He paused and said, well, maybe I wouldn't leave her. No one else for her, really. And I said, hmm, maybe you wouldn't leave her. No one else really for her. All this is so tough, isn't it? I wondered if I should say it or not, and then I chose to just go for it. And I gently offered, maybe you can have a conversation with her and tell her that you know how tough it is for her. And maybe you might also tell her it's tough for you too. And then maybe you could tell her what you're worried about and why. And maybe then tell her that even though you're scared for her and frustrated with her, you won't leave her. He smiled at that. And as he did, his gold tooth glimmered and his large gold cross on his chest that hung from a large necklace around his neck 
seemed prominent. I was fond of both of them. I know Archer was fond of her. He left the kitchen, but hopefully not her, at least now. My hope for this young woman would be that her dad might not capitalize on a suffering to create another suffering. And it's always a hope that the relationship between a child and mother that's bad might be better. Maybe not great, maybe not much of a good relationship, but at least some clarity about where each stands, a truce, if you will, without sharp edges so that others, and in this case her dad, is thus not able to use it as a further wedge with his daughter and really against both of them. It doesn't have to be kumbaya, just the clarity about the boundaries without the rough, jagged edges. I've seen in two decades of my mediation practice how rough it is on folks as adults who had bad relationships with their parents when they were kids or young adults that's never worked with but just left by virtue of moving on in life, going to college, moving out, whatever, always seems to rear its head until it's addressed some way. And the fracture in that basic parental relationship brings so much suffering that trails for many years into adulthood and middle age. It affects their own marriages and parenting. And on goes the cycle. It could potentially be very different with assisted dialogue. I've witnessed it. At its core, forgiveness is an act of compassion and kindness towards ourselves. When it's hard to forgive, we can look within at what wound of our own is still unaddressed. When we do decide to forgive, we free ourselves from the burden of carrying around negative emotions and we find ourselves moving forward with a sense of peace and closure. It allows us to begin again. This renewed sense of relief and inner peace helps us heal any deeper emotional wounds not yet fully integrated. And it also helps us improve our relationships and cultivate greater empathy and understanding for others. Forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting or excusing the hurt that was caused, but rather acknowledging the pain while also choosing to let go of the desire for revenge or punishment. It's a process that can take time and may involve difficult conversations within ourselves and with other people. It can be supported along the way with a willingness to seek out relational support, healing support from others. Habits are powerful reinforcements that help us navigate the world around us with greater efficiency, and they can be particularly helpful during times of significant change to help keep us balanced and stabilized, such as routine. 
However, habits can also become serious threats to our well-being long-term when they serve to mask deeper wounds in a sort of bypass, moving on while we continue to suffer within, often for years or decades. When we're faced with significant change, and particularly a traumatizing situation or events, our brains may go into survival mode that prioritizes routine and familiarity over novelty and exploration. And this can lead us to rely on our existing habits more heavily as they provide a sense of stability and predictability in an otherwise uncertain world. Understanding this and appreciating this intelligence for the short term allows us to go back for the long term to what caused us to suffer with a certain arm's length distance as well as close-up proximity to unpack it and begin the integration process. But back to November 2015. Talking about vulnerable and scary things that deeply impact health and well-being. Well, as the notion of drug dependency throughout hospitals and rehabs really reverberated for me and lingers for me, even as I write, that's when I hearkened back to a vividly recalled meeting we all had in Atlantic City. It's hard to believe we have been on this ICU hospital journey now for over three months. All seven of us were there in the waiting room. That includes Petey's girlfriend, but not Archer, since he was in his hospital room. It was towards the end of our stay in ICU. It was another one of those family conferences I had been asking for for a couple of weeks regarding what we could expect and what we can understand about Archer's medical situation and do as a family of caregivers. Our lead doctor finally capitulated and said we could have it upon our leaving. That seemed apropos, although our experience was teaching us that it definitely was not the norm for doctors to meet with assembled families. I was deeply appreciative. I don't know why hospitals do not have such conferences with families routinely. Well, it takes time. It's the most efficient way to talk with the family so we could all hear the same thing together. And it's the most efficient and effective because we all benefit from the questions asked by a few and the views expressed by each other. So I felt his willingness to meet to be a true act of kindness. I had all the kids on notice to make sure we were all assembled. It was the third gathering we had had. We were shipping out of this ICU with a lot of unknowns ahead of us and unknowns we were also leaving behind. As we waited for the doctor at the appointed hour, we began our family meeting as Billy and I updated the children on what we knew. There was a seriousness in the room 
some tears. There was also a certain weirdness about the meeting because we were about to break up. We had just spent the entire month of August as a family in an ICU. There was a craziness about it, as well as a certain intimacy, since it had fallen in the summertime when we all had a lot more flexibility with time. As we neared the end of August, Paula was toggling work, Pete and Dewey were getting ready to go back to their respective colleges. Sites were turned to get Dutch's school supplies and uniforms cleaned and new tennis shoes and to figure out how Billy and he would live, the two of them, while I essentially moved to Atlanta with Archer for a while, another unknown. But based on our shepherd intake consult, I was going to be away until around Thanksgiving. I could feel a certain anxiety about our impending disconnectedness. I certainly felt it. One of the kids had asked how they could best help Archer and help Dad and me. It was a moment I will not forget. The first of two of this particular family conference. I paused and said, the very best way to support Archer and to help Dad and me is to do well in your own lives. Do well. Live your lives fully. Stay connected to Archer and to each other. And also live full lives your lives. Do well in school. Work on good relationships. Work hard. Choose to be surrounded by good friends. Choose wisely. Be involved in the world. Stay close to God. Support each other. That is the best way you can help Archer. And in the big picture, Make the best decisions you can. We don't want any alcohol abuse, drug use, violent or cruel or insufferable relationships, sadness and depression that's not attended to. We're going to stumble. We are all going to make mistakes. Let's try to minimize the big ones. That's the best way you can help Archer and Dad and me. The doctor entered the room. We welcomed him into our circle, and he began with a few things about Archer's status. Just having him come, I recall thinking that the doctor really cared about us after 30 days in the ICU, or I know I had been a pain in his side on many occasions. What was normal for Billy and me and our family was not for them. And what was normal for them was not for us. But I will never, ever forget what the chief doctor said 
and it went something like this. I know he had thought about us. It was very evident. And he said, You don't know what lies ahead for Archer. None of us does. I wish you all well. He was then conversational, and he continued. You know, your lives are different now. They're changed. You have to realize that. I don't usually get to know families like I've done with you all. I've seen you. I've seen how close you are. Your lives are different now. These kinds of things are catastrophic. Archer may be just like he is now forever. These kinds of things can break families up, even ones like yours. I hope that doesn't happen to you. It was a stunning moment. It's true. We are all fragile. We really need each other so that in our weakness, we can find unity again. Please pray for our family unity. It is also true that we are resilient. Dear Lord, please give us hope when we become discouraged. So I will leave you for now. These times of momentous transition caused me to look back at where we had been and where we were, knowing we had a long road still ahead. As part of the later looking back for this podcast, I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Ray Tolucci, the Chief of Trauma at Atlantic Care Medical System in Atlantic City, New Jersey, six years later. He was the doctor and that last meeting with our family before we left Atlantic City, New Jersey, headed for Atlanta, Georgia. But it was almost six years later when I reached out to Dr. Tolucci. I did not expect him to remember who we were of all the thousands of patients they treat in the ICU. But I was wrong. Listen in. I do remember that that time we spent together, like it was yesterday. Seriously, that's how, if I remembered Archer, I would say Archer's name uh, comes up at least once or twice a month when people still refer to that experience in different uh, discussions. Wow. So, so everyone remembers Archer. Wow, and, and why? In what ways does it come up? Amazing. Well, it's just because of the nature of someone who's 15 years old, who's got his life ahead of him, has a family who loves him and is all, you know, there's, you know, everyone lives through you. 
everyone has children in that that are at home. And we all think of my God, you know, this, this could be my child. Yes. This could be my child, you know, and we all think of that. And that's how it becomes so important. So, you know, I, I was kind of surprised when you didn't think we would remember. So, because I think everyone kind of thinks that, you know, we, we remember. I would like to think that anyway, because that's what an emotional impression it all makes about us. Well, keep you going. We all have the potential to leave lasting impressions onto each other. The time had come to ship out again, this time from Atlanta, Georgia, to Baltimore, Maryland. Here we go, one last time. Family and Friends Update, November 16th, Monday. I will probably write you tomorrow or before we ship out again, this time home to Baltimore, Tuesday. November 17th. My last note is for families. Let's pray for the strength of our families, for our marriages in particular, in their fragile times. Yours, ours, everybody's. As marriage is not always easy. On Sunday at church, after I'd gone to communion and was returning to my pew, it was thinned out a bit, as a person or two had not returned to the pew, but had headed out to enjoy the rest of their day. Communion is the crescendo, after all. It was momentarily chaotic in the pew as everyone was reorganizing as they refound their seats. I noticed that the space was empty where a younger woman had been sitting next to the mm, 30s-ish man. I had assumed they were together. Teasingly, in all the commotion, I whispered to the young man, Did you lose your wife? He replied back, She went to the car and gave me a feeble smile. It was a moment that, if I had thought harder, I would have known something was not right. But there was no additional moment as he leaned back into me as if needing to be more honest and said, I hope not. Those words had a graveness. I knew. He knew. I leaned back in and whispered to him, I'm sure you have not lost her. In the silence of the prayers after communion, he put his face in his hands and began to cry. Dear Lord, please bless this man and his young wife and all the young men and women and the older men and women and the middle-aged men and women who are desirous of good marriages but who are struggling. It's so natural to struggle and also so destructive if we don't attend to it. Let's all say a prayer for that. Dear Mother Mary, please surround us with your loving arms and care for us. Dear Father Bruno Lanteri, help Archer 
experience the creative miracle. Dear God, thank you. As I believe we are all living part of the creative miracle now through our unity and gratitude for what we have. Thank you, dear God, always for your love, power, and mercy. Amen. Sending love. November 16, 2015. Archer Semft, Family and Friends Update. Monday, day 105. We're shipping out in a few hours. Please say a prayer for our safe transport. I feel the angels' wings surrounding us now as we pack our mare only one bag each that we're allowed to take on. It's sad to go, but the necessary thing to do to get Archer the attention he needs to breathe on his own. We'll be picked up at 6 a.m. by med flight crew and on an air ambulance jet, 6.40 a.m. to 8.40 a.m. to Baltimore, then ambulance by ground to Kennedy Krieger and Johns Hopkins. We love Archer's army and all our prayer warriors so much. We say goodbye, goodbye to Atlanta Archangels with gratitude Archer Strong, sending love. Archer Semft, goodbye, Atlanta. <laughs> Family and Friends Update. Wednesday, November 17th. Day 106. Begin again. We are off on our way out of room 429 on the fourth floor of the Shepherd Center at 5.55 a.m. I had a cannoli per Archer's request in my pocket. That and our orchids placed carefully in a bag I kept in my lap that ward off any dark energy lurking in the corners of Archer's room. They do emit good oxygen to begin again. The Medijet EMS team arrived at 5.30 a.m. We had been told 6 a.m. Last time, they were on time to the minute. When they knocked on the door and I was just putting in my contact lens after we got Archer taken care of and ready to go, I laughed and said, hey, what are you doing here so early? It's not nice, like a prom date arriving a half hour early. And we all laughed. I felt like myself in that moment. But it was no nonsense after that. I watched the team of four swiftly and carefully move Archer from his bed onto their stretcher by lifting the sides of his linens to form a sheet harness and then swiftly strapping Archer in. I was aware this time of every click of each seatbelt and a stretcher. And as we whisked out every change in temperature from his cold 
62-degree room into the warm hallway of the unit, into the drier air of the elevator, to neutral air in the hallways, to the damp and balmy air of the early morning Georgia fall day, where his ambulance van awaited. Temperatures matter now for Archer, a lot, so we take notice of new things now. They briskly wheeled him down the shepherd hallways as we made our exit. The same hallways I had marveled at as we made our entrance, holding, as we did so much hope, two and a half months ago to the day, and then up and into the ambulance van. I said to Archer a few times, you're doing great, bud. This is familiar. There's nothing to fear. He was very courageous. This trip, he had no drugs to knock him out in any way, shape, or form. He had a new antibiotic given from what I could tell, which was preventative since he had a high white blood cell count yesterday. But it had been making him nauseous since noon yesterday when they started it in the trip bag. But as they lifted him up and into the ground ambulance, the craziest thought flashed through my mind simultaneously as my eyes welled up. I was not expecting the emotional response. I realized I was flooded with many emotions. But what flashed was a thought about new beginnings and Archer's donor, his bone donor, for his neck reconstruction. Thank you, anonymous donor. Whoever you were on earth and are now, I am so grateful to you for giving Archer your hip bone to replace his shattered C2, C5 neck bone. Thank you. That is the ultimate gift of unity, to give your body. Some of you might realize that, that Archer had a donor is a very important part of Archer's medical history. His impact was so great that his neck bone shattered into pieces. He told his rescuers he had heard a loud cracking when it happened. Can you imagine? He knew upon impact also that he was paralyzed. I think I told you that part already. That part still takes my breath away, though. His surgeon tried to get the fragments out of his spinal cord as best he could and believes he did. I've always wondered if there wasn't some part that no one could get that shattered higher up, causing the C3 level as well as C4 level of injury. The donated bone is now fused to Archer's C4 and C6 neck bones for stability. They're healed now as if it had been a regular neck fracture, but it's a burst that caused him to need a donor. 
Gosh, I'm so grateful for donors. Since I was 16 and got my driver's license, I always check the donor box. Well, some young person did the same. I was still standing outside to see Archer inside the narrow transport van, surrounded by a team of three medical staff squeezed into the tight space when he began to need oxygen and a suction. That mucus, it's omnipresent. Sure enough, he had more clogged in his lungs just since the 5 a.m. suction. Two lung suctions in flight. He did great. Mo, one of his medical techs said, Archer, you've got a really good gag reflex. And I thought to myself, he gets that from his mother. Never imagined it could be a good thing. Here we are, in flight. Surrounded by angels. Arrived at exactly 8.40 a.m. Amazing. Thank you, pilots, Eric and John. It's good to be home. We're now traveling with a loud siren through town from Middle River to KKI. We just arrived at Kennedy Krieger Institute. It's 9.27 a.m. It's 52 degrees outside. Thank you, dear Lord. Mother Mary, Father Bruno, and all of you prayer warriors. I know we were surrounded by angels, both earthly and heavenly. We are about to have a new beginning. Please pray for us. Amen. Sending love. Thank you for traveling with us on this journey. As we wrap up this final episode of season three, I encourage you to bring mercy and forgiveness to all sectors of your day-to-day lives. It's good for you, and for me too, to do so. Feel the impact it has on your relationships with loved ones, with strangers, and with your higher self. If you learned something today or had an experience that moved you or brought you insight, please share this episode 28, Preparing a Family for Another Transition, with a friend. If you're not subscribed, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review, a five-star, if that is how you feel about Blink of an Eye. Your support allows us to continue sharing this story and the trauma healing learnings and spinal cord injury resources. Stay tuned during the break between seasons for bonus montage episodes and never-been-heard interviews of those who were behind the scenes of season three. See you all in season four. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love.
Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Begin again. Love heals trauma. Thank you for listening. And thank you for telling your friends about Blink of an Eye podcast. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.